Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. I'm David Rothkoff, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Rosa Brooks, a law professor at Georgetown University, a senior fellow in the New America ASU Future of War program, and the author of How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything. Also joining us from sunny California, Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. She teaches Thinking About War at Stanford, Safe Passage, her book on the Anglo-American hegemonic transition, comes out from Harvard in the fall. And we also have with us David Sanger, the national security correspondent for The New York Times and author most recently of Confront and Conceal, Obama's Secret Wars and Surprising Use of American Power. Recently, each of our guests took time out from their roles as omniscient puppet masters operating at the true center of global power to have the following conversation. So welcome back to the heart of the deep state. One of the things that we haven't seen yet is... That thing that is most illuminating in every presidency, and that the is orb? the orb, the orb. Yeah, exactly. We've <laughs> seen the orb, but the, it, the one of the things that is most illuminating is when a crisis reveals the true character of the president. We have seen this president. We've seen his team inflict self-inflicted wound after self-inflicted wound. We've seen them do some absolutely crazy and indefensible things but without any real crisis. And as I was thinking about the the terror attack in London and the terror attack in Manchester and some of what's been going on elsewhere in the world, it struck me that sometime soon, something really bad and challenging is going to happen here in the United States or somewhere in the world that is going to demand the president in the Situation Room leading his team and making big, tough decisions on which American lives and American values and America's allies are going to depend. And, you know, Corey, how do we think that's going to turn out? I would like to conform to Rosa's vision of me as eternally optimistic um, while she is stacking canned goods inside her (laughs) (laughs) privately purchased missile silo. Uh, But I'm actually not very optimistic about this. I think there's only so much you can do to shield the American government from the choices of the president and the commander-in-chief. And I think his judgment is so profoundly faulty uh, that I worry that crises 
which tend to be the actions of the American government, where the president has the widest latitude and where regular processes constrain behavior least. I, I'm really worried, actually, that the president's erratic behavior, just look at the reactions he had, the, the unhelpful, uh, nasty goading of our closest ally in the world, Britain, and and the mayor of London at a time where, by all evidence I have seen, um, British police, British civil officials, and the British people have been responding magnificently. They're a model for us all. And the president has made their work harder, not less hard. I shudder to think what his reactions will be um, if given the wide latitude of action in crisis that that American institutions of government give the president. So, Rosa, it, it, th- what have you gleaned from the behavior of this president that you think is relevant to how he might handle a crisis? I think we have gleaned that he unpredictability is the only predictable thing about him, and and. Uh, you know, I, I know that sounds like a cop-out, but, but I think that that's actually a pretty important insight, that we we keep trying to read the tea leaves about Trump for some sign of what he really, really thinks and what he really, really is likely to do. And the the tea leaves tell us that there is no there there, that it's completely random. And, and, and that's actually worth keeping in mind as we go forward, because I think that, you know, he will he will randomly respond in perfectly sane ways every now and then when a crisis comes along. He will randomly respond in terrible ways when a crisis comes along. And there is no value, I think, at this point to continuing to kind of go, well, you know, and 1998, he said such and such, and in 2007, he said such and such. So, you know, maybe that tells us that if such and such happens, here's how he's going to react. I think there's no value to that. Is there any evidence? Oh, my God, he's a magic eight ball. He's like a magic eight ball, (laughs) except dark. (laughs) Dark eight ball, right. My sources say apocalypse. but, yeah, but, but David, <laughs> I, I, I actually I actually own something called the sarcastic eight ball, which is sort of like the magic eight ball, except it says things like "Yeah, right," and "You wish," um, and and we should somehow introduce that into our decision making. Uh, I think. Well, I think we have in the form of this president, but David, <laughs> what 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 are you? What have you seen, whether it's response to a military uh, situation or a response to North Korea or a response to terrorism, in the recent actions of this president that you might extrapolate out to such a crisis? Well, so far we really haven't seen uh, a crisis, which is why Rosa and I are flipping through those listings right now for the silo because the price of the silos is going to soar the minute that we it have, it would be better to get them now. You want to buy your silo real estate early, yeah. Yeah. So we're we're actually only keeping. We're we're actually keeping only one. <laughs> yeah, we're we're only keeping one ear on you here, David, because we're flipping through silo listings as we as we go. Um, no. So what have we seen happen in the way of crises? You had a. It wasn't even a crisis. You had an incident over Syria in which the president's first instinct was to act militarily. I actually think he did the right thing in going after the air base in Syria. And I think that had President Obama done it, I think most of President Obama's supporters would have been 100 uh, percent behind him. Um, on Korea, 
we're at the very early stages, but I fear that that could well turn into the crisis that is the test. Uh, and there, the very hard part is that the president doesn't seem to spend a huge amount of time thinking about the impact of his decisions on his allies who have as large, if not larger, a stake in the outcome. Had he, he would have come out in a different place, I suspect, on climate change. Um, had he, he would have come out in a very different place and cutting out the reference to supporting NATO in his speech. Um, so the, the difficulty that we're running into is that America first, the phrase that you have accused me of putting into the president's ear, has gone a little bit further. It has – it's being heard around the world as – America the selfish. In other words, that the U.S. is only going to do what's good for it and does not see that America gets strengthened as its allies get strengthened. And that's a problem when you hit a crisis moment. The amazing thing is... Absolutely. Just... Um, I'm sorry. Go so right ahead, Corey. If you were in agreement with me, right. I will let you interrupt me. <laughs> <laughs> I was in agreement with you. Vehemently so. What I was going to say is that, you know, our... Our strategy for managing North Korea becomes untenable if South Korea and Japan won't support it. And, and that is one of the ways we are going to pay a much higher cost for President Trump burning through all of the reputational will of the United States burning and through, refusing to play team sports. Burning through every major alliance we've got. I mean, Germany, the U.K., France, um, uh, Japan, Korea—you um, know—it—it—it it, it doesn't stop. I think you know that it's very clear that Rosa was onto something in the prior episode when she started talking about buying silos. And it's just taken me four seconds online to find David. You're not giving this podcast your full attention. I know I am. It says here most highly developed Atlas F site part of exclusive airport subdivision. There's another one that's being developed, and both of those are in the Adirondacks. There's also a hardened underground communications vault. Now, these are a little more expensive than you said, though. They're in the sort of 800000 to a million dollars. Well, those are the really fancy ones. If you just have one little tiny yeah. missile silo. Look, if you want the command center that's got yeah. the five-inch floppy uh, disk drives, you know, that went out of business <laughs> right. 20 years ago, right. you've got to be ready to pay big <laughs> money. If, if, you, if you need to have your own underground reservoir and two redundant nuclear power plants, that's, that's going to cost you. There, there is, by the way. I, I encourage everybody to go. There's a website called Hardened Structures. Com, and one of the pages on it is silos and bunkers for sale. So Are you I just sure that's not a porn site, David. I, that's exactly I, that's, what I was thinking, Corey. David, I think you should put your phone away. Okay, first of all, let me be absolutely clear: it doesn't seem to be that. Um, no, it's all silos and bunkers. Anyway, <clears throat> people can mm -hmm. look at that. People can look at that under on, on their their own time. But let's <laughs> let's just let's just take this a step further. Let's go away from hardened silos. And and think a little bit about <laughs> think a little bit about a particular kind of crisis because I've seen some discussions and had some discussions in the past couple of weeks with people who said I see the way Trump reacts and I think oh no what if there's a terrorist attack in the United States what if he actually has an excuse 
to go farther yeah. on his ban. Well, one of go- the interesting things that happened recently, right, was that uh, it wasn't an American British politician. Uh, uh, a Brexit Brexit lover um, raised the internment word on American television uh, a few days ago and said in the context of Britain, uh, well, we have, you know, 20,000 terrorists on the watch list. Uh, we need to start thinking about internment. And, and I, I think that that kind of rhetoric, uh, which is already out there in this country as well, needless to say, uh, I, you know, it wouldn't particularly surprise me. I think that's that's the most frightening worst case scenario if there was a terrorist attack in this country, that travel ban would start looking like a kind of warm, fuzzy approach to Islam and, and refugees from war-turned countries that instead President Trump would be talking about internment camps for Muslim Americans. I don't think it would take long at all. Uh, what so else? to tack back to our earlier discussion about whether uh, sensible people should stay in the administration. I think one of the difference between a foreign policy crisis and a domestic policy crisis is that, and I hate to say it, I think there's reason to be a lot less confident in John Kelly as a bulwark against bad outcomes than there is um, to look at the people on the foreign and national security policy team and think of them as bulwarks against bad outcomes. Well, that's because Some John Kelly has been... Kelly has said... I mean, he's, he's like, hopped into Trump's I'm lap. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I'm just saying he's John sort of Kelly has yeah. sort of hopped into Trump's lap and said, scratch my belly. I do think he has... He appears to be in much closer alignment with President Trump's policies, some of the worrisome policies, than anyone in the national security cabinet is. So, Rosa, give, 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 give us another, David, give us another thing that might happen in the event of a terror attack. David, I have already given you nuclear apocalypse. What more do you want? Well, because I don't think we're going to have a way, nuclear. I don't think I don't think we're going to have a nuclear apocalypse. But he's I, already given you nuclear apocalypse. What do you want for Christmas, David? <laughs> Look, let's be clear. He wants Nuc- a silo. Yeah, nuclear. <laughs> no, I want a hardened silo. Nuclear apocalypse is what Rose's first go-to is on almost anything. Kids' birthday parties. It'll be like, "What do you want for your birthday theme, kids?" <laughs> and, and she'll go, "Nuclear apocalypse." Um, but 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 since that's not near term likely, but it's since as we've seen in London, some guys can get in a van, drive into a crowd of people, stab a bunch of people and have a massive effect. And that could happen anywhere in the U.S. You know, you might see. The well, tr- in fact, I believe well, that today five people were shot in Orlando. But yeah. thank goodness. I'm so happy to be able to tell you that those five dead people were killed by good old fashioned workplace violence not connected to terror, which makes them all happier, too, that they're they aren't dead at the hands of terrorists. But look, we have seen acts not in not in this administration uh, of terror on American military bases in California and so forth. And the question is how the president will react to that. And, you know, we all know that horrific is what we saw in London was, and it was truly horrific, that um, more than seven people die each day of random gun violence in the United States. And we don't get the same kind of political reaction that something has to be done. It's the wrapping it in an adversary and enemy ideology. And that doesn't mean to suggest for a moment that we 
don't have to take this problem extremely seriously. Of course we do. And one of the most important things we need to do is make sure that ISIS could never get a hold of a weapon with which it could do a lot more damage than it can do with a white van and some machetes. Um, so we have to be all over it. But I too fear that there could well be an atmosphere uh, that the president would stoke by any incident that uh, caused death that may well have been triggered by somebody who was an immigrant to the country or had come in illegally or overstayed their visa. Uh, and uh, that is, I think, a, a very legitimate concern about how the U.S. would react. And frankly, I'm not sure that all of us living in our happy little deep state bubble or in the case of me and Rosa, locked in a <clears throat> small padded room, have a real understanding of what the reaction would be in the rest of the country. But my guess is Donald Trump probably would get a lot more support for the kind of reaction that Corey described before than we can possibly imagine right well, now. Well, and in fact, if you take the London attack, one of the attackers was from Pakistan. Another one was from Morocco. Neither one of those countries are actually covered by the president's travel ban. And so, you know, despite him saying that it would have helped, which it wouldn't have, um, it does seem to suggest that expanding the scope of what he's doing would be his first reaction. And that, in fact, the biggest threat associated with a terror attack in the United States might be the blowback from the administration against American values, whether they're at the border or whether they have to do with free speech or the right of assembly or uh, 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 surveillance or other kinds of things where you could you could easily see this administration overreact since even in the absence of such an attack, their impulse is to overreact. Yes. Thank you. I was like dead air. You're absolutely right, yeah, David. You're absolutely right, David. Yeah, exactly. Well, we'll come to that theme. Well, let's. And I like saying that because it really works for both of you. So yeah, no, we it, both so feel better. Right. She wasn't looking out. at me when she said it. Yeah, but you feel better. No, I was looking at. I was looking at listings for hard and She was looking silos. at the silo listings. And yeah. yeah. Well, let me let me go to a different kind of crisis. Let's set aside the terror crisis again. One of the other areas where it seems like there's been a lot of damage. Corey talked about it in the last last episode, is to U.S. credibility with our allies. People don't believe us. Uh, and, uh, you know, particular relationships, the relationship with Merkel, the relationship with Macron, the relationship with uh, uh, our, our Mexican and our Canadian partners, et cetera, et cetera, with the Japanese, have um, been undercut by Trump. And so there, there's also the possibility of a crisis overseas. Russia moves against the Baltics. Russia flexes its muscle a little more in Ukraine. Russia and Iran decide to work together to open some overland route connecting Tehran and Beirut uh, in a more overt way. And, and, and we need to call upon our allies to act. Is it going to be harder? Do we actually think that the damage Trump has done thus Absolutely. far? Absolutely. Explain. I don't even think it needs to be a crisis. Let's just take a, a routine instance. Indications are that the administration, minus the president, so we haven't crossed West Executive Avenue yet, but, but that the administration has concluded that, uh, that a new strategy for Afghanistan will require 
six to 12,000 additional troops. And their, their reported plan for this is that NATO allies would provide half of that. After the president's behavior in Brussels, after the, all those tweets about Angela Merkel, as she is uh, facing an election, after Theresa May's denunciation, how do we go back to NATO, even in this routine circumstance, and think allies are going to be willing to gather around what we say is necessary. What it will require allies to do is say, our national interests require it in spite of cooperating with the United States. Um, so that's even before you get to a hard problem like our Iran strategy forcing Turkey, our Syria strategy forcing forcing Turkey into closer alignment with Russia and Iran, something happening when we try and invoke a NATO Article 5, and Turkey, acting as Russia's agent, rejects a, an Article 5 invocation to protect the Baltic states. And we have to do it outside that bound. Like, there's so many ways in which things can go bad. And the worst thing about President Trump and his approach to the international order is that he seems to think there are no costs for boorish behavior when, in fact, he's burning very quickly. There's a wildfire burning that is destroying America's reputational advantage in the world, the desire for other countries to work with us to do what needs doing, and that will drive the cost up to the United States dramatically for anything we try and do in the world. By the way, Dave, just do you as a fun, used to invite Corey onto these because she was the optimist <laughs> in the group. She still is. I, that's. I thought that was probably pretty optimistic, uh, because it implies some kind of functioning dialogue in those those relationships. I do want to point out for you know those of you who are you know first time listeners that West Executive uh, Avenue is the little driveway that separates the West Wing of the White House from the what was called the old executive office building or is now called the Eisenhower building and in that building of the NSC and and frankly a lot of the uh, denizens of the deep state who keep an eye on the White House um, uh, so th- that's why that's a relevant reference D- but but David and and Rosa let me just take this a step further another consequence of the dysfunction in Washington and another consequence of 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 the breaking down of these relationships is other countries feel like they can, should, and have the opportunity to step up and 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 sort of lead in a direction uh, that we would never have seen before because things would have gone through a process where the U.S. would be more involved. China and Germany and France and a bunch of American states and a bunch of others said, well, look, if the U.S. isn't going to lead on climate, we'll lead. Um, and you could easily see if Russia stepped things up in Europe and and in the Baltics or someplace that you might have the Trump administration hemming and hawing for a variety of different reasons. And all of a sudden, it would be up to Germany and France to figure out what to do, just like it's been up to the Saudis and the UAE and 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 uh, the other GCC states to take their action with regards to Qatar which was not part of an American plan, but changes the dynamic in the region, particularly mm-hmm. when you consider there's an air base in Qatar. And so one of the other things that we're likely to see here is other countries in the lead in places no one who is alive today has ever really seen or expected. 
I, I think that's right. And being being what I believe is now called a globalist, uh, or maybe a rootless cosmopolitan, or 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 something, or just a member of the deep state, uh, I I think that looking, we need to look beyond our own instinct, which is to say, sort of like Trump, when we all say this from time to time, America first, and we worry about what's going to happen to America and what's going to happen to our nation's reputation and power. And I think the answer to that, as Corey suggested, is, is bad things are going to happen and are already happening. But if we look beyond that and we say, okay, uh, how about that global order? How about the rest of humanity? We don't know. It may turn out that Donald Trump uh, is bad for the United States in, as a hegemonic power, but uh, you know, maybe maybe the U.S. going off the rails creates an opportunity for other states to step up in positive ways. The problem is, of course, uh, maybe other states step up in in negative, horrific ways. We we don't know. Um, but but I, I don't automatically assume that a world in which the United States has abdicated leadership is a worse world uh, in the longer run. M- you know, maybe good things happen. I, I don't I don't assume the opposite either. But but I think it's worth playing out that thought experiment. Okay. Okay, so Rosa has become. She's I'm an just, optimist. <laughs> she's displaced Corey for the optimist. Now that I have identified here. my future home in a missile silo <laughs> deep underneath Washington uh, D.C., I'm well, ready to be optimistic. First of all, I want you to know, Rosa. Before there you go aren't... into the silo, Rosa, I'll give you my Kiara that where the rhinestones spell out optimism, so you Excellent. can take it with you to Excellent. the silo. Wow. I think we need a photo on the deep sites, maybe even a T-shirt of Corey with the tiara. And by the way. I actually think among the swag we ought to offer to our listeners is the rhinestones tiara. Rhinestone oh. that's, that's true. I think we've been really limited. Back when we, back in the old days, guys, when when we were doing the ER, we were our imaginations were sorely limited by that whole mug yeah, thing. I, I think we've got a whole yeah, line of no. I, I'm over, I'm way past mugs. I'm now actually thinking of marketing silos on the deep state site, and I've just found two. <laughs> That are in Vermont, so we can raise cows oh, and have the silo there. Okay, uh, they'll be, be radioactive, but, but that's the way it goes. Yeah, yeah, they'll that's... be gigantic. We'll get lakes of milk. It'll be great. It'll be fabulous. So, um, so I think China is the big beneficiary here. And actually, the day of the climate uh, accord, I wrote in the Times that uh, Trump had handed the Chinese a huge strategic gift. And why had he done that? Because, or how had he done that? Because he enabled Xi Jinping, who already gave his speech in Davos, portraying himself as the thought leader in free trade and the thought leader in the environment, both of which are palpably laughable concepts. But he's actually made it credible because at the moment that the United States and Nicaragua and Syria are the only countries to have rejected being in the treaty, the Chinese can step up and say, we're the ones to go set the standard. Well, in fact, and they as did. a huge emitter of carbon, they have. And you know, it may not be the standard we want, but when mm-hmm. we take ourselves off the field, and that's what makes this different from other superpower competition. I can't remember other cases where we have just sort of seeded the field. Well, that and, and no one... And yes. It, go on. I, I, nope, go ahead. No, no, please, 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 Corey. Be, 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 we have to be nice to each other because when we're well, all locked together in the silo, we're, we're really going to have to... Well, wait a minute. 
we haven't even had the discussion about whether we're letting Corey and David come to our side. Oh, that's a good point. Okay, you're right. Yeah, you go ahead, guys. Fight, fight, fight. Wow. Does that mean that once we're all in there, we'll get to vote each other out of the five out? Oh yeah, no. That's we're a, that's, just, we are all that is left of civilization. So we we we've got a we've got a plan accordingly. Maybe a few friends. I love cows, I love where you're going with this survivor survivor <laughs> survivor the final Lord edition. Of the flies. You know, I it's think like, we could bring some of our listeners. Exactly. There are only eight of them. Yeah. So, but back to the point about what we're giving China for free um, is that nobody who advocates the positions that the president has taken appears to have calculated what the opportunity costs are of regaining those positions if we want them, which will be much more costly than sustaining them. Second, has acknowledged that establishing them, it, it's true that the United States contributes more than most other states to the rules-based order, but what we contribute still isn't very much, and it's way less than having to overturn an existing order to establish rules that we want. And that's the point that David Sanger made that I really wanted to underscore, which is that, um, you know, if you're not the maker of the rules, then, then it doesn't matter whether you like them. They're going to be imposed on you unless you forcibly overturn them. And that's where Trump is taking us. A well, much lonelier America and an America that has to pay an awful lot more to get rules that it wants. Well, and I think also, it, you know, just to take that a step further, you know, sometimes I see even some of the more sort of calm, rational members of the Republican Party who have been very critical of the Trump administration, urging him to say th- th- to do things like get out of the U.N., get out of other parts of the multilateral system. And we seem to forget, just as Trump forgets all the time with NATO, that we actually created this system to help serve our interests. And that if you get out of it, you lose mechanisms that make leadership easier, not harder. And you create voids which are filled by other states rather than us. And if you step out of a climate accord, weaken NATO, don't stand up for the key provisions of NATO, aren't credible with your Asian allies, then take steps like getting out of the UN, you could actually see real irreversible or difficult to reverse damage to America's leadership role in the world over the course of the next several years. Is that an overstatement? Is it is or is this just all going to be over the minute Trump leaves? Our lack of influence, I think, is not going to be a big issue if this turns out to be a brief blip in American diplomatic history. If it turns out instead that we're in a prolonged period of constant turmoil in our domestic politics, then I think we will lose influence. And I've covered a country like this before. I was a correspondent in Japan in the 1980s when everybody believed that Japan's influence around the world was growing strongly because its economy was growing so strongly. And once the economy crashed, since Japan did not have military influence or a big diplomatic um, uh, footprint, its influence went away. We have the triumvirate. We have military influence, we have economic influence, and we have diplomatic weight. Our economic influence, I don't think, is going away in the long term. Our military influence isn't going away. But if we voluntarily take ourselves out of 
the big global issues of the day, somebody's going to fill the space. Do you think? I think that's right. I, th- I think it's most likely China. Do we I don't think because Russia does not have the attractiveness or the economic power or really the military power? But 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 Rosa, the core question: Is the damage that Trump is doing? something that is likely to linger on for a while after he's gone, or is it reversible quickly? I think it's still reversible. I, you know, I, I think that if if in four years, three, three and a half, whatever it is, Trump is gone, uh, I think we recover uh, with, with if we have a reasonably wise person replacing him. Um, you know, I, I think that if we somehow sink deeper into this, you know, give it a decade, and I think it's hard to recover from. Uh, so it just depends how quickly we get out of this. Corey. I think there are two separate possibilities. I, I agree with everything David and Rosa have already said. I think there are two separate possible paths. The first is, as Rosa suggested, that China steps in, China or other hostile powers either individually or in combination, step into the void the United States has created and, um, and write different rules that we either are powerless to overturn or so isolated that other countries won't help us overturn. Um, so that's very definitely the negative trajectory. Um, I think there is a more positive trajectory, which I believe I also think I see leading elements of, which is other countries that are stalwarts of a rule-based liberal international order, France, Germany, Britain, Japan, South Korea, Australia, step forward and either, and most likely in combination, try to sustain the order as we abandon it. And and in the near term, what that means for the United States, even the positive track that I identify means that the United States will try and take initiatives and others won't help us, whether it is what we want to do in Afghanistan or whether it is what we want to do about the value of the dollar or trade agreements. We're not giving people any reason at all to help us achieve what we want because President Trump doesn't seem to, he seems to take for granted that other countries have to help (laughs) us and that's just flat not true. And I think we should keep in mind, even though we're narcissistic American foreign policy nerds, um, that actually, and, and not all of you listening are actually narcissistic American foreign policy nerds. Some of you are narcissistic nerds in another country. But but in the United States, we think, well, all we have to do is perhaps get rid of Trump. We'll have a new policy. Everything will fall back into place. But by then, if institutions have atrophied, if other people have stepped up, led, and liked leading, if others have liked being led in other groups, the world will have changed. And we've already seen things like this with the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank and other manifestations of leadership where the United States has stepped away created a void. And so those are the things that are hardest to actually undo uh, simply with a change of personnel at the top in the United States. The good news for all of you who are listening is that over the course of the next weeks and months, you're going to get to hear us and some of our friends, people that you like, 
come back week after week and offer the perspectives of the deepest part of the deep state uh, and, and, and help you manage the way through the deep crap that we are all in with the leadership that we have here in Washington and the changes that are taking place in the world. That's why Deep State Radio is here. We want to hear from you. Text us, email us, tweet us, carrier pigeon us, uh, Facebook us. Uh, I'm not on Facebook, but Facebook, one of the people who is. And, you know, send us ideas for shows, for T-shirts, for mugs, for live events, for other things that we should do. For tiaras. Tiaras. Silos. Silos. You know, we've, we've, we're, we're blazing new territories here, but we want to do it as a family because I have to tell you, one of the most heartening things we've seen in the past few weeks is all of you who've said, we want Rose and Corey and David Sanger back together again. We're back. We are here, and we're going to be here for a long time to come. Thanks for joining this. Corey. Uh, in your tiara, Rosa and David in your silo. See you again next week. Thanks very much. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know what.